This episode sponsored by The New Press, publisher of The New World We Need, stories and lessons from America's unsung environmental movement, defending homes, strengthening communities, restoring the land. The World We Need offers a vivid look at the people protecting America's communities against environmental degradation and racism. Visit theworldweneed.com to find out how you can help. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Popular histories, regardless of subject, tend to share the same historical fallacies, an overemphasis on and oversimplification of particular people and events that squeeze out other, more subtle factors of change, or just don't fit into the author's ideology. It's clear what beliefs drive John Meacham's latest book, The Soul of America. The American experiment, though marred by universally condemned sins like slavery, is fundamentally good, and the office of the president brings out the best in the men who occupy it. In the July issue, Thomas Frank reviews Meacham's latest book and the HBO documentary that's based upon it. I spoke with Frank about what's missing from Meacham's approach, Meacham's connections to President Biden, and how our understanding of the present is limited by the decimation of non-coastal journalism. We're recording this the day after Donald Rumsfeld, who was once named sexiest cabinet member by People Magazine in 2002, died. And it seems like every outlet is trying to outdo each other with headlines. I mean, I got one, got an email that said, Donald Rumsfeld, rotten hell from huh. <laughs> a, a certain publication. You could probably, it was Jackman, not surprising. But I guess what was your reaction to his death? I mean, his he he certainly undermines this great man theory of history, or, is, or at least the idea that the president is the only important person in U.S. government that matters. Uh, I don't know about that. I think Rumsfeld would have been one of those people that didn't the Bush administration generate this theory of the presidency where the where the executive was like the only thing that mattered. I remember uh, what was it called? The unitary executive theory. Do you remember yes, this? that's right. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But uh, look, I was obviously that was a really um, a bad period for me. You know, I remember when the when I knew the Iraq war was going to was coming and it was a I forget how long after 9/11 but um uh they were you know they were pushing this idea that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9/11 and I remember a cover of I think it was the Atlantic magazine that showed Saddam Hussein with blood on his hands and I knew at that moment that this is where it was all going and that we were going to they were going to they were going to get us in a war with Iraq even though Iraq had nothing to do with with 9/11 and um it was extremely frustrating, extremely frustrating. You want to know a funny fact about that? At the time, so I lived in um, Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood in Chicago, and and my state senator was a guy called Barack Obama, and um, <laughs> it's a very liberal part of Chicago. And I was pissed off about this. Uh, and when the when the war got going, I was pissed off about it. And all my friends were pissed off about it. And uh, they. They held an anti-war rally and Barack Obama spoke at it. And that was basically that set up the uh, the sort of dynamic that later made him president, because you recall he was the only guy running in uh, 2008 in the Democratic primaries who had a legitimate claim to have opposed the Iraq, yes. the Iraq war. Yeah. So anyhow, but yeah, Rummy, I mean, all those people were just such tremendous jerks. But it's you know what I what I've been thinking about lately is not uh, is not so much the Bush administration, but the sort of incredible revulsion against the Trump administration, which which actually allowed a lot of members of the Bush administration to rehabilitate themselves. Now, now right. not not Rumsfeld himself. I don't I don't recall uh, hearing of any of him doing anything during uh, during the Trump years, but so many other Ari Fleischer. I was thinking of David Frum. 
Oh, him. Oh, yeah, him too. Ugh. <laughs> and uh, so, so many more. You know, all of these people who who essentially endorsed that stuff, and were able to completely rehabilitate themselves just because they, you know, they disliked Donald Trump. So, or you know, they they were more polite. They're more suave in their their. Well, I I don't know. It's 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 so it's hard for me because there would be so many people who would be like, oh, Donald Trump is the worst president, and I'm like. George W. No, Bush. Yeah, I was going to say Trump. George W. Bush really took, he, he has a long way to go before he hits Bush. <laughs> well, they're, but they're judging by different standards. They're judging by the Me- the Meacham standards, which are, you know, his, vul- yes. his you know, his <laughs> vulgarity, his, uh, his lack of respect for the office. Uh, come on. What are the, what are the, what are the buzzwords? What are the keywords here? Uh, it's, it's, it's stuff that I never think about myself, but, but that, uh, you know, everybody else talks about all the time. Temperament character uh, decency you know and and if if you judge george w bush by those standards you know he he wasn't that bad he always wore a tie in the oval office he didn't um have sex with an intern you know so he invaded a country under false pretenses so he so he like he had he had allowed industries like wall street to to regulate them to police themselves and it ended in disaster you know so what he was at least he didn't curse on tv that's right (laughs) that's right a little you know what are children supposed to think uh but i mean let's because i would say you know you write this review of john meacham's book and this hbo documentary that shares the title with the book the soul of america and it seems like kind of an easy swipe because, you know, Thomas Frank excoriating this goober who kind of speaks in these meaningless platitudes and espouses historical facts that everyone can agree on, you know, the good and the bad. But as you <laughs> Wait, know, sometimes a lot of the a lot a lot of the stuff he says is really tendentious, you know. Oh, absolutely. And we will we'll get to that. But I mean, the, the just the idea that you would take on somebody like Meacham, as you note in the piece, John Meacham is very close to President Biden. Yes. Can you elaborate on that connection? Yeah. So I, I don't think I don't see it as taking on an easy target at all, because this guy is an important public intellectual. His books are widely read. He wins all kinds of prizes. He's got the Pulitzer Prize. Oprah loves him, you know, on and on and on. He's on TV constantly. We did the math. MSNBC, he was on something like 500 times in the course in the course of the Trump administration. And uh, uh, his latest or his not his latest book, but his um, sort of uh, magnum opus, The Soul of America, in which he sort of pulled all his ideas together and tried to generate a theory of American history. Uh, This was swiped. The title of it was basically swiped by Joe Biden in his run for the presidency. It became Joe Biden's slogan, you know, a battle for the soul of America. Biden did openly acknowledged that it wasn't like Biden was doing this surreptitiously. Uh, Biden is very close with Meacham. Meacham uh, meets with Biden in the White House. You know, Meacham whispers in the president's ear. He is as close to a powerful intellectual as this country has. And so it's it's not like uh, taking on an, an easy target. This is this is like really important. This guy, what this guy thinks and says is 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 very important. And I guess what would you how would you characterize what he's saying and how he is characterizing not just America, but what liberalism is? Well, the, the, I don't think of John Meacham as a as a liberal. I would have never called him a liberal until recently. But the, the fact remains, it is Joe Biden, the Democratic president and the Democratic candidate for president a few years ago. That's who is embracing him. It's, you know, Meacham is on MSNBC all the time, you know, which is the liberal network. But it wasn't all that long ago that Meacham was, you know, I would have never thought of this guy as a, as a Democrat or as a liberal because he was this huge fan of Ronald Reagan, who sort of defines modern conservatism. Meacham wrote a lengthy and admiring biography. And by the way, not a bad book. He's pretty good at the sort of biographical stuff. He wrote a biography of George H.W. Bush, you know, George Bush Sr., spoke at George Bush's funeral a few years ago, you know, and then that's just 
talking about Republicans on the sort of uh, economic conservatism, he's always been right there for the Republican Party. I remember when he was editor of Newsweek, he did a cover story when uh, George Bush II was president and they had uh, they had bailed out Wall Street. This is in um, during the financial crisis and I think after the election, but before Barack Obama had become president. And uh, and he he said that that was um, he said uh, the cover story that he wrote was we are all socialists now describing the the bailouts of Wall Street as an act of socialism, and it's like <laughs> you know <laughs> you know uh, that's tough that's hard to take uh, for someone like me yeah in you know the the documentary where it's sort of structured around it's sort of this loose introduction to him you have this, you know, great man music, you have him saying these wonderful things about America, but also kind of a little, a little critical, just a little critical things about America that everyone can agree on. Um, And, you know, it's clearly a response to Donald Trump. And it's interesting to watch that now. Yes. Post Trump and in the Biden era. Yes. You know, it's been a long time in this country since you had historians that were able to uncritically celebrate America. That you you'd have to go back quite quite a ways in order to find that sort of history. But but uh, what uh, what Meacham does is he says, you know, America has a good side. I mean, this is in <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like there, there's something so simplistic about it that uh, that, it, that yeah. it's hard to it's hard <laughs> to take it seriously. But basically, the idea is that in the soul of America, you have a good side and you have a bad side. Mm. <laughs> wow. I know you have the duality uh, of man. So there, so there are so there are good forces in history and there are bad forces in history. And the job of the historian. It's not so much to define which is which. He takes all that for granted. We already know before we open his books, which is which. There's no like there's nothing really um, challenging there, like saying, you know, all the stuff that you think is good. You know, we're going to we're going to challenge that. We're going to say, no, maybe a lot of it is actually bad, which is classically what intellectuals do. But that's not what that's not what Meacham does. His job is just to celebrate the good and denounce the bad and not to not to like redefine them or anything like that. We all we all know what the bad is. Can you guess what's bad? What's what's bad, Violet? What's bad in American Uh, history? Slavery? Yes. Segregation. Japanese internment. Yes. 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 Uh, McCarthyism. Well, that's bad. Uh, and, uh, no, wait. This is like they they enumerate these, and uh, yes. <laughs> so it's like it's like racism is bad, yes. uh, sexism <laughs> is bad, uh, you know, and uh, and and red scares are bad, and that's yes. that's about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it because it's it seems so interesting and unchallenging, and perhaps this is why. Yeah he is so widely popular because it is kind of a refresher of things you probably remember from high school history uh, class. Oh, this is like, no, this is more simple than that. It, at least in high, in high, in high school <laughs> history class, you would like get into the, some, some of the complexities of the, around these issues, you know, but that's yeah. not, that's no, that's not done here. The, the, the role of the historian is to celebrate the good and to denounce the wicked. And that's it. And just to do that again and again and again. And, you know, these completely ordinary observations nailed down with completely familiar quotations that you saw in like Ken Burns documentary. Or you remember like like the Army McCarthy hearings when uh, when the, the lawyer for the Army says to McCarthy, at long last, have you no decency, sir? Yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> oh, let's quote that again. It's always the the most familiar quotes. Uh, the most famous quotes uh, arrayed to support the most non-controversial observations like, you know, McCarthyism was a bad thing. Right. I mean, it it feels kind of like a cheat almost because, you know, one of the easiest ways to fill out pages and say a term paper or meet word count on an article is to just, you know, insert quotes by other people that you know are great and so you don't have to write as much or introduce your own ideas as much. And because these quotes tend to be long, it's better than whatever you could possibly generate. And well, so it's okay, just, but it's let's, like, come the... on now, let's, let's be fair. <laughs> so I, I did study history once upon a time. That was going to be my, I had intended to be a historian earlier in life. And um, that is what historians do, but they do that for legitimate reasons. You want to be, ex- you want right. to be exposed to the original words. 
you know, the idea is to understand what people actually said in the past. So of course, yeah. But I mean, when it's when it's something like, oh, our our better angels. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Don't you love that concept? <laughs> and and wait, and the only reason that that is like that we're supposed to take that seriously, or that we're supposed to think that's like a a, a real category or a real way of thinking about things, is because Abraham Lincoln said it. And, right. <laughs> and wait, 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 Violet. I don't know if you're aware of this. Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that, wow. I think I remember reading that. Violet, Violet, that like presidents are like really important. They're really important guys. Yeah. No, it's, we live in a pretty cool country. I don't know if it's pretty cool. The American experiment is pretty great. And I mean, I actually, I mean, wait 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 i don't know if you understand this though i don't i don't think you've you've really looked at this all the way there there have been good presidents and there have been bad ones Mm. (laughs) wow go on yes take my money (laughs) he actually does have an interesting theory in here somewhere which is that and and this is uh, original with meacham i've never seen anybody else argue it well maybe somebody has i don't know that the presidency is uh, the, the office has a magnetic attraction to the good. Yes, mm. which I had I had never heard that one before. But, but you know, you'd arguably say, well, we're not. You know, the, the, to become president, you have to go through this long political career. You have to do all these things. You can't really be like, you know, a bank robber and be, and become president. <laughs> you know, I mean, oh. Trump Trump is about as close as we've ever got. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know, ordinarily, you know, it's just like they aren't they aren't people who deal in in um, you know in wickedness. The guys who are elected president, you know, they all go to church, and again, with a few exceptions, they're uh, they they like us to think that they're good people. So it's not that remarkable. But that's that is yes, that is Meacham's theory. Is that is that presidents are magnetically drawn to the power of the good, and he and he shows presidents who seem to become better people once they are elected to the presidency. Although, you know, he doesn't go into great detail on these people, so it's not it's not clear that what really happened or anything like that. But that's that's his theory. Right. Cuz he's the way he is presented in the documentary and you know, he's like this kind of little dorky, sweet-sounding southern man, you know, older, kind of He's younger than me. <laughs> I know, I swear he makes himself look older on purpose to have like that grandpa feeling like it's all part of this theory but but specifically i'm asking because he seems to be this so popular because he's an exemplar of liberal patriotism which has different features or at least pretends to have different features from conservative patriotism and i was wondering if you could you're gonna have to tell me what you mean by that just that you know he's um a conservative patriotism is that america is always good ah, right ah, yeah. and that and that and that this liberal but, patriotism but, but no that even conservatives acknowledge the bad chapters it's, they they have yeah. they have yeah, started yes I, the, no I, there's there's no more um lost cause theory going uh, around yeah, yeah like that's that's, 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 that's dead there's i i don't know of any yeah. any historians anymore who um who argue any any version any iteration of that you know that that stuff is completely gone but i'm i'm thinking of someone like so the the guy that um meacham reminded me of most and maybe this is a little unfair but he reminded me of glenn beck Mm, okay yeah glenn beck was this kind of very important figure in the early obama years remember he had a tv show on fox news he would cry do you remember that and, yes, and, of course, the chart. Yes, the chalkboard. <laughs> he he once he once put yes. it, unless I dreamed it. I think Beck once put me up on the chalkboard. You know, he. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. But uh, but Beck was similarly obsessed with presidents, especially the founders. Right? Beck was really, really, really concerned with the founders and would do these close readings of their of their texts of their speeches and their writings and stuff like that and uh you know he understood history via the presidency but he was also obsessed with good and evil so uh beck would would always say you know we've had good chapters in our history and we've had bad or whatever his terms were for that but this is this is really not a uh 
you know, controversial or, or innovative, you know, way of looking at the past. It's, it's incredibly commonplace. And, um, I think of Beck as a conservative. Now the, the difference is Beck was, um, singularly obsessed with Barack Obama as, <laughs> as, as, yes. as an evil actor, <laughs> right. which is just seems so weird to me, but that's, that's what he was. And, uh, and Meacham was obsessed with Donald Trump as a wicked actor. Right. And I mean, I mean, even, um, there's even a pretty funny moment late in the documentary where, uh, Meacham is praising HW Bush for not sort of like dancing over the grave of the Berlin wall. And he says, and he says, you know, because HW knew that Gorbachev had this extreme right wing who were very patriotic, one of whom included a young KGB agent named Vladimir Putin. Oh, it's like, look out. Yeah. That guy's going to come and get you. Yeah, like, yeah, literally, this is how long this game has been going for Vladimir Putin. <laughs> He's been planning this. Like, again, this this obsession with who's good, who's evil, and and their ability to exert power over these things that there are many factors coming into this. And it's a very limited histographical approach, right? Yeah. Well, look, they, so when I, when I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to present myself as some kind of authority on, on the currents in American historiography. I, that is not what I, I, I don't follow it anymore. I used to study it, but I don't anymore. But I, I, I'm here to tell you when I did study it, nobody did great man history like this anymore. What you, what you studied right. were social movements or what that's what fascinated me. I mean, there, uh, there are two things that, that, were in vogue when I was uh, in history. One was studying sort of social movements, uh, what we call social history, the history of ordinary people and how they lived their lives and, and how that changed. And then uh, the history of ideas, what we call intellectual history. And I was I was in love with both of those fields. But the idea of, like, of just like doing history through the prism of presidents, I mean, I, it's just so uh, it's it's not just a throwback. It's like I don't even know when that was uh, uh, in vogue. I guess. Wait a minute. I guess like the turn of the century of the last century or something. It's like, it's like Thomas Carlyle. What was Carlyle's title? It's it's uh, heroes and hero worship through history. Um, it's the the sort of that's the classic text of what they used to call great man history, where it's all about like Napoleon and his genius, you know, and Napoleon outsmarts everybody else, and he is the smartest man in all of Europe. You know, and he he does all these great things on the international stage. And then you've got another hero that, you know, that's that's great man history. But that's that's what this is. It's a it's a it's kind of a curious throwback. Yes. I, I mean, and and again, I think it's you could argue that it's fulfilling this psychic need in that, you know, so much stuff is changing so quickly. And there are these incredible social movements uh, which are visually referenced well, the suffragists are mentioned. Yeah, oh no, that's right. And then yeah. compared to the women's march, yeah. which is seems like a very apples and oranges sort of thing, where it's like the the women's march. You know, it was it was a great statement, but there wasn't an underlying praxis there. There, there was there no, was no unifying there was no movement. Yeah, there was no movement. It was a statement, and and the suffragists were fighting. You know, being force fed in prison and undergoing yeah. like really alienating horrific experiences and women's suffrage also was a movement that was around for a very long time uh, before yes. they finally achieved victory uh, right and uh yeah and that's you know that's important to remember these are uh you know that was a, a long-standing social movement but look it goes with where we are today we uh so i'm speaking to you from kansas city where i'm i'm um, visiting members of my family Kansas City is a city of the metro area is a city of two million people. And the local newspaper is just about dead. It's, you know, it's it's uh, been shrinking and shrinking for years. It still exists. It's not out of business yet, but it, it's, you know, it's been changing hands from one owner to another. They had to sell their office building. The, the, the news section is down to, you know, it's very, very small. And this is the kind of city where, you know, they're not going to uh, they're not going to know about what you're doing unless you tell them. Right. If your company is do, if your company is based here and they're you're doing something, the newspaper isn't going to find out about it unless you call them up and tell them. It's they they just don't have that capacity more. And so the idea of actually reporting on the lives of ordinary people and understanding like society, 
which is what history used to be interested in. That is something that has become increasingly foreign to us. I mean, the only newspapers that are left in this country are based in New York or Washington. I mean, the ones that have any any life to them. I mean, you have an, an L.A. Times and a Chicago Tribune, but again, they are they are shadows of their former selves. And as a nation, I think, especially as liberals, we focus on uh, top down everything, everything, because that's all we understand. Uh, we also liberalism has changed now in the in our lifetimes. When I was young, you know, I was taught and I believed and I understood because it was incredibly obvious that liberalism was the sort of political formation of working class people. It was liberalism right. was about the, the bettering the conditions of ordinary people in their lives. And today, liberalism is about rich people sort of scolding everybody else, rich people being being better <laughs> people than everybody else. You know, liberalism is 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 identified with these affluent parts of America. I mean, and that, that whole working class side of it is disappearing before our eyes. I mean, it still exists in some ways, but, uh, but Meacham is, is in, he's, he's a, a symptom of that, you know, this, this focus on the presidency, because that really is how we understand, that's how liberals understand their world now is, is this, this top down thing. Uh, and, and his whole idea that power do you remember the old saying that uh, power corrupts? Yes. <laughs> well, for, for Meacham, it doesn't. Power ennobles. When, when right. someone becomes president, they become a better person. The office has that, that sort of magnetic power over them. And, uh, uh, and that's kind of what we believe as liberals, as liberals. You think of Hillary Clinton boasting about carrying the wealthiest parts of America, the parts that are vital and vibrant and moving forward and more tolerant and more diverse. We just understand liberalism is a, is a, is a philosophy of the better people, the more powerful people, the wealthier people, because the enlightened the, people. Exactly, that's the word, and that's and so Meacham fits with that, I think, in a way. Yeah, I mean, obviously, what you're describing is, is partially politics is theater. Another great old saying that is more or less true, and I, it's you know when the Tea Party first got in, that first wave of politicians got in during the Obama era, they made a big deal of reading the Constitution. Yes, you remember that. As a spiz performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They would have backyard parties where you were supposed to. <laughs> yes. But, and, that's, and that sounds ridiculous. It, it was ridiculous. But then when Trump was in office, the Democrats did the same thing. Yeah. And, and so it's it's this yes. it's this theater that's inherent to politics, but both parties are fundamentally invested in holding this document, and saying this is actually our document, number one, and then number two, they're they're interested not necessarily in you know fixing climate change or addressing the evils of capitalism, but this self perpetuation, and it's it's this sort of critique is absent in both you know it's absent in center right histories to say the least. It's increasingly absent in a lot of history. What critique are you talking about? The critique of capitalism. The critique of, okay. and also the, the of environmental collapse. Like we're facing environmental collapse. Like it was, eight, it was 18 degrees Celsius in the Antarctic today. Like this is, this is something that everyone should be acting so, on. It, I, so Violet, I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's like room temperature in Kansas city. <laughs> Usually, usually the summers here are really steamy and hot, and, and, oh, and, and this okay. year, this year it's not. So I'm not worried. I was, uh, I was trying to explain global warming to my. Uh, we, well, like, I don't want to go there. Let's, um, <laughs> let's stick to. Um, so environmental history is a relatively new thing. So that was that was when I was in history graduate school in the late '80s and early '90s. I don't recall anybody studying that, but they they may have been. There were people were doing the history of science, which is absolutely fascinating, but we'll talk about that's not, I don't want to get into that right now. Now, there there are people who are doing what Meacham is doing. This is a, an old uh, sort of genre in history, the grand sweeping history of progress. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, uh, you know, the, the triumph of good over bad or the struggle of good and bad all throughout American history. And there, there's many examples of this. And they tend to be books about the history of liberalism. They tend to be written by liberals and they tend to be histories of liberalism. And there's there's one that I uh, that that his book made me think of, and I went and and pulled it off the shelf, and it was called it's called um, Rendezvous with Destiny. 
uh, written by Eric Goldman. Yes. Uh, and Rendezvous with Destiny is a famous line from a speech by Franklin Roosevelt. You know, this generation has a rendezvous with destiny. And uh, I think that was in 1936 he gave. And it's one of my favorite Roosevelt lines. But Eric Goldman was it was a one of the classic histories of liberalism. Eric Goldman, by the way, was a public intellectual in his day, a serious historian, but also was on TV a lot, uh, wrote for popular magazines, was an advisor to Lyndon Johnson. And uh, he takes the title, like Meacham, he takes the title of his book from a, a, a speech by a president, in this case, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, whom he regards as the climactic figure in the sort of struggle for liberalism and for justice uh, in, in American history. Okay, so I compared the two books and there's and there's lots of similarities. You know, these are two books trying to do the same thing, Meacham's Soul of America and um, Goldman's Rendezvous with Destiny. And Goldman hits all the same notes that Meacham does. He talks about the struggle against racism. He talks about the fight for women's suffrage. He, uh, although his book was published in 52 and McCarthyism was actually still going when he wrote the book, he denounces McCarthyism in it and he, he denounces red scares in general. So all of the themes in Meacham's book are present. But what's really interesting is that Goldman has that's just a small part of his book. The overwhelming majority of it is concerned with something completely different that Meacham barely even talks about, which is the the struggle for economic democracy or the how would you say the problems of capitalism, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> exploitation, pollution. Mm -hmm. Millions of people working for nothing, the struggle of farmers and workers to come together and to try to tame capitalism. This is the great sweeping narrative that, that Goldman tells. And it's the, that is his generation. Again, writing in 1952, Harry Truman was was president. This was his generation's understanding of the grand sweep of American history. And it's and it's when he's writing it, America is literally at a, it's a high point. You know, we've achieved progress in all of these wonderful ways. You know, Eisenhower has not yet come in. Truman has you know, has basically the New Deal is complete except for health care. And Truman was not able to get health care done. But desegregation of the armed forces is underway. So the, the New Deal has been is committed to civil rights at this point in 1952. You know, not fully, but it's that that is well underway. And so it's it's kind of a triumphant take on American history. What's funny is all of that economic stuff is is missing from Meacham's account. It's just not there. It's completely forgotten. And, and I, sometimes I, I think, Violet, I, 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 I wake up and I, and I'm like, did I dream all this? You know, did, did <laughs> didn't liberals used to care about these things? And, and we never talk about them anymore. Like organized labor, like agrarian radicalism, like the struggle to stop, you know, monopolies, you know, Standard Oil. Did did I just dream all that? I mean, because no one ever talks about it anymore. It's as though it has disappeared from the conversation. It's like it was never even there. Right. No, and I mean, this was this is actually something that I was kind of trying to get at before when talking about how Meacham performs authority and sounds authoritative, even though he's peddling very basic stuff, is that, he, you know, he, he's not talking to you like a Bernie Sanders with this intense passion and citing things like economic injustice, environmental problems. Like he's just sort of, you know, he has this very calm but authoritative voice and he's leading you through history and he's telling you at the end of the day, everything's going to be fine. Right. Yes. And that's very comforting. And and uh, and I think that was actually a, uh, you know, look, I, I think that was a good thing for him to be doing during the Trump years, because there was a lot of hysteria and, and yes. anything that <laughs> I, I don't disagree with him on that, by the way, <laughs> anything you can do to keep that hysteria in check, I think was, was wise. But what's weird is the deletion of this, uh, of the struggle for economic justice from the story of liberalism. And I don't want to, I, I want to be real clear about this. Meacham doesn't just delete it. You know, he barely talks about it at all. He goes the other way. For Meacham, the, the big villain, and you have to really sort of drill down and read between the lines and, and read, not read between the lines, but do a close reading of the book to understand this. 
economic discontent is the villain in in his telling of American history. Now, that's new. Okay, that is new, especially for liberals, especially in this kind of genre that we're talking about, the grand sweeping narrative of American progress, you know, which, like I said before, is a historical favorite. Historians love to write books like this. But for him, economic discontent is there's something suspicious about it. There's something wrong with it. It's always leading people astray. And he had these, you know, there's these, there's these very curious takes that he offers on, on U.S. history where he describes the Ku Klux Klan as a, as kind of a, work, a white working class organization. I, I, this is not something I had heard before. He describes it as a kind of la- like something like a labor union, which I, I I'd never, you know, that's kind of interesting. And then he, um, he describes Trumpism as a result of economic anxiety, but not ec- economic anxiety, full stop, economic anxiety, which, which leads to racism, which leads to Trumpism. So in his mind, economic anxiety seems to be a kind of uh, threshold to, uh, to racism. Uh, this happens ag- again and again and again in, in, his, in his account of U.S. history. Economic anxiety and racism seem to go hand in hand, whereas for another generation of historians, economic anxiety was what would often lead to progress. You know, to to organized labor coming together, to the populists coming together, to, you know, you name it, uh, right up through the 1960s, economic anxiety is what gives you change. But but for Meacham and, and and this is not just Meacham, by the way, this is a lot of liberals now would agree with this. Economic anxiety is something uh, suspicious. It's something to be concerned about because it leads people to Trumpism. Right. Because they... I don't know. They're just not as well read. Well, they don't understand globalization, Violet. Yeah. They, mm, yeah. You know, they don't understand that this is all, you know, they, they can't see the bigger picture. By the way, which was an argument that has always been used against working class organizations, always since the beginning of, you know, I wrote a book about populism last year, and that's that exact argument was used against the populists that these these stupid farmers in Kansas, they just could not understand global wheat markets or something like that. And they, you know, and so, so therefore they had, they had no right to be asking for the reforms that they were asking for, you know. Well, the book and the documentary very much tied to and a f- response to four years of Trump, which again, um, no matter how good or bad any president is, they have at least four years Unless they die. Yeah. Like it's 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 really it's like no matter how bleak things are, it's not necessarily going to last that long. And so now that we're in the Biden era and Biden made all these promises that within the first hundred days, I will do this, 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 this. And now that we're past those first hundred days, speaking of time, it doesn't seem like a whole lot is happening and that there are still a lot of children in detention camps along the southern border. And there's still a lot of things that, you know, the death penalty has not been abolished. There's a lot of things that are not Come happening that seem like, like there's, there's a lot of things. That would, the getting, abolishing the death penalty would be a long reach for someone like he Biden. He said he was going to do it. He said he was going to do it. All he right. said, Biden or said he was going to abolish the death Federal federal death penalty. Biden is one of the guys that like supported the federal death penalty. If you go back and look at the, the oh, crime yeah. bill of ninety four, that's he he flipped he flipped oh, he? for this election. Yeah, because I mean, just like I mean, this is my thing with with Meacham. It's like he clearly is tailoring he's tailoring himself and his history to the times in which we live, yeah, right? Yeah, because yeah. we are living during these times where there's a, a lot more activism. A lot more people are upset people are voicing their critiques of these existing systems and so this book is kind of a gentle reflection of that but not going very deep and so with biden he he did the same thing right where he he posited himself as perhaps a more um a little further left than he actually is so i guess how would you how do you see the the rest of biden's perhaps four to eight years turning out because it seems like, you know, the Obama years were, there was a lot of stasis. Right. So you know, I, I have to tell you, you know, I've commented on this for a lot of different podcasts and stuff like that. And it's just like, I get, I get so much shit for saying anything nice about Biden. 
but uh, uh, but I <laughs> but I have to be try to be fair. Okay, so let's let's say something nice about him, and then I'll go to the to the disappointments. But Biden's economic team has left austerity in the dust. And there's that's I am really happy to see that austerity being, of course, the sort of doctrine of the Obama years and before that you have to be uh, you have to be responsible. You can't let the deficit get too out of control. And uh, I, I love that the Biden people have just. Uh, they just don't care about that anymore. I'm not talking about Biden himself here. I mean, who the hell? This guy was the biggest deficit hawk for his for his enti- entire career in the U.S. Senate. And now he just doesn't seem to care about it anymore. And that's hey, that is a welcome development. Let's not let's yeah. not poo poo that. That's that's good. I'm really glad that <laughs> that that's happening. And And I have to say the biggest challenge facing us right now is to keep Donald Trump or someone like Trump from being elected president again. And the way you do that is you obviously you you make yourself extremely popular. You go out and you appeal to these people that voted for Trump and you win them over. And that's not hard to do. I mean, we know who those people are. We know what they're upset about. You know, it's it's I've been writing about this my entire career. It's the it's generally speaking, it's the white working class. These are people that are watching their uh, lives deteriorate. There's all sorts of ways a really vigorous liberal president a kind of, uh, you know, Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson style president could win those voters back. It's it, 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 it wouldn't even be hard. Let me put it that way. It would be hard, however, if you're not willing to challenge your own party and you're not willing to, you know, his his majority in the U.S. Senate is extremely slim. If you're not willing to do away with the with the you know, the sort of technical rules like the filibuster, the frankly, just between you and me, undemocratic rules that uh, uh, I mean, I don't I am not a big fan of the filibuster. And Biden has a majority. He should be able to use it. He should be able to get what what needs to be done. And uh, if he wants bipartisanship, I don't even think that would be too hard. There's always one or two Republican votes that are that, that you can peel off you know, with some classic Lyndon Johnson style log rolling, it's, it's not, it's it's not a hard (laughs) thing to do, but what you have to do is you have to have a vigorous program, you know, that you're going to help these people out. You're going to actually change their lives for the better. You have to know what you're doing and you have to, you have to set about it in a really deliberate and forceful way. And that is clearly not happening. You know, I like that he got his big, that they, that they're going to do something on infrastructure. The details of it are awful. I like that he's that he that he wants to do these other uh, big uh, social spending bills, but he's basically now it, confessing that he can't get it done unless they abolish the filibuster, and he and he's got no interest in a. Anyhow, so uh, look, what could he have done? First of all, the uh, minimum wage, which he let uh, another he let a, t- a technicality trip him up on that. Oh my God, I know that's so yep. dumb. <laughs> uh, but there's uh, there's all sorts of things that he could be doing. Antitrust is a big one, and they seem to, they seem to be making baby steps in the right direction on that. But you want to talk about like what would help farmers? What would help small town America? These are places that are overwhelmingly Trump now. How, how do you bring those people back? These people used to be Democrats, or a lot of them did, anyways. I, I, I mean, I, I'm here, like I said, I'm in Kansas City. Rural Missouri was once overwhelmingly Democratic, and that wasn't just because they were racist. You know, it was, it, you know, and then the party stopped being racist, and they all abandoned it. That is not the entire story. They, there were people who were loyal, hardcore liberal Democrats in this state, or in the state of Missouri, I should say, up until fairly recently. And uh, you can get them back, but you have to make a real, you know, you have to deliver what politicians are supposed to deliver. You have to improve the lives of ordinary people. And uh, I don't see Biden... I think his economic team understands that that's what they need to do. I don't think they understand the urgency of it. And and by the way, this is uh, fascinating because we've just been told for four years that Donald Trump is the second coming of Hitler. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating there. There were people who said that there were serious academics who said that that Trump is Hitler there. Hmm. I've just finished a book making that very argument written by a prestigious historian at like Yale or Princeton or somewhere like that. There's uh, lots of people made that argument. Well, if you really think that not only have you should you have done away with the filibuster by now, you should have like be doing everything in your power to making sure that that guy never comes back and that his party that, that, that his party gets badly punished for nominating people like Donald Trump. Well, you should be that you should be doing that with every fiber in your being if you sincerely think that's the case. They clear they clearly don't. They clearly don't 
don't think that. They're, this is all, they're just like, they're taking it easy in Washington, D.C., you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's again, it's this, this theater of this threat. Oh, they're, not, only, not only is it, the, I'm sorry, Violet, you, but you got me going here. I, I wa- I, by the way, I want to get, get back to Meacham at some point, but, but they, they're already, they've already pulled off, you know, the, the old uh, Green Lantern theory and dusted it off and are using it again. This, this is a theory for encouraging nothing. This is a theory of complacency where, where, where liberals say to imagine that the presidency has power. You follow me here to imagine that the presidency has power is to think that the president is a superhero and like a green green lantern comic book character. That's how dumb it is. And and the liberals are already saying this again after they just told us that Trump was Hitler. Yes, I know. It's like (laughs) one one of these is true. Which one of these is true? Either the president. They're they're both wrong. They're both wrong. But Trump is bad (laughs) enough. You know that, that yeah. you don't want him coming back. You don't, and you don't want anybody like him coming back. But at the same time, the president is not powerless. You know, there's all kinds of things that Joe Biden could do to improve life for ordinary Americans. You know, there's all kinds of things, and yeah. uh, uh, but they're just, you know, look, I, I was never like optimistic about Joe Biden. Um, during the primaries, I was a Sanders supporter. Uh, Biden fascinated me because of a lot of these Meacham things, because he was reassuring. He was grandfatherly. And there's a certain side of me that said, yeah, that's exactly what we need after this asshole, Donald Trump, you know, in, in the White House. We need a guy with civility and with, you know, gravitas. And we, we kind of need that. But that's by itself, that is not enough. Anybody can tell you that's not enough. That president also has to be Lyndon Johnson. That president also has to be Franklin Roosevelt. And there's no sign that that Biden has any intention of doing those things. What's funny is Biden does know how it's done. He, he, was, he was in the Senate his entire career. Now, he's not there long enough to remember Lyndon Johnson, but he remembers a lot of guys like that. He remembers Robert Byrd, for God's sakes. You know, there's there's a long tradition of this in the U.S. Senate. Uh, he can get this shit done if he wants. Yeah. I'm sorry, Violet, you got me going there. You no, no. Can, no, can we, is, can we is, go back is, to history here? Can we please? Okay, well, let's go. So back to history, not the present. We're going back in time. I would be interested to hear more about. Meacham's bibliography. In your review, you mentioned this book he did with the country music singer Tim McGraw about sort of like the great American songbook and how it sort of intersects with politics and his ideas about history. Well, it's the it, way the way popular history. Well, sorry, go ahead. You just took the words out of my mouth. It's it's popular history. He's writing, you know, he's writing history for a mass audience. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, Violet. I write for uh, the general public. I don't write for academics anymore. And I, I did that deliberately. You know, I did that on purpose. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can still have strong ideas and uh, and interesting ideas and new ideas, new interpretations, even if you're writing for the general public. But the the idea, again, the idea that seems to be Meacham's, Meacham has two um, innovations. One is the idea that we talked about before, the, the, the pres- presidents are magnetically drawn to the good. And the other is this idea that um, economic discontent is the bad guy of American history. It's kind of, kind of the villain of American history. And there's a, a, a really kind of shocking example of that in the book of, of protest songs. And it's a, so this is, now remember, this, it's a history of, of American songs, of popular songs in America, including a lot of protest songs. And the, the, the aspect of Meacham, so take a step back here. When you say that economic discontent is a problem in American history, that it's not on the side of the good, that it doesn't yield victories for liberalism, there's this huge counterexample, okay, which is the 1930s, which is the Franklin Roosevelt administration, which is uh, earlier historians, and in fact, sometimes I, I, again, I wonder if I, if I dreamed all this up until very, very recently, Franklin Roosevelt was regarded as the the great triumph of liberalism in America. And I, you know, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I I must be the only one that thought that because no one says that anymore, but yes, he was. And the Roosevelt administration came out of economic, I don't know if you ever heard of this. They had this thing called the great, the great depression. Began, began with a stock market crash or something like 30% unemployment. You know, we were on the gold standard. People 
people had to use barter. It was a terrible, terrible, awful time. My dad grew up then. He used to tell us stories about it. It was real bad. Okay. And Roosevelt, the great triumphant liberal president, came out of that. Okay, so economic discontent literally gave us the great liberal triumph in American history. And then Roosevelt got all kind. I Again, I sometimes think I dreamed this because nobody else talks about it anymore. Roosevelt did all these things. I don't know if you're aware of this. Like he, he regulated the stock market. He uh, uh, legalized labor unions. They, you know, they set up all these relief agencies. You know, they help, helped right. out homeowners so that they didn't get foreclosed on. Uh, they, they gave people they jobs. Gave people jo- yeah. All kinds yeah, of people. They gave people jobs. They Artists, built the national even. parks. They did all these things. Yeah. And, and, and is, all of these triumphs were due to economic anxiety, if you will, economic discontent. And, and so that's like a... a I want to say that's a pretty well-known chapter of American history. And and Meacham basically doesn't talk about it, or he talks about it in the vaguest of terms, just sort of smooths by it, doesn't really talk about it. And and the um the 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 great example of this, I mean the it's kind of a shocking example, is in that songbook that you mentioned. And I was sort of flipping through the songbook and he has the, his representative song of the Great Depression is appropriate. It's Brother, Can You Spare a Dime, which really was the anthem. I could, I could sing it for you, but I'm not going to, which really was the anthem, the anthem <laughs> of the early 1930s. Studs Terkel writes about this in his, his classic book about the 1930s. It's called Hard Times. He has a chapter just called The Song. Where, where people talk about their reactions to that song, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? And, and so, of course, that's the one that Meacham includes as, as the song from the Depression. And he mentions, uh, you know, what the Depression was, a time of unemployment. And then there's an, there's an illustration, a visual illustration for the song. The illustration is illustrating um, breadlines. You know, that there were, in fact, breadlines during the 1930s. Now, this is this kind of blew my mind when I found it. The illustration that he that he that he uses is from an old like um, bank advertisement, a, a sort of trade association for banks put out these posters in, I think, the 1920s. And this one is called the breadline. And this is you can read the text in the in the ad. And again, this is being used as an illustration of the depression. OK, in Meacham's book, this is the text in the ad. Now, Meacham himself didn't write this. It comes from an ad in the 1920s, as far as I can tell. But but here's what it says. There are periods of depression and periods of prosperity, but unfortunately, there is always a breadline for those who haven't learned to save. Yes. (laughs) Wait, Violet, it goes on. No. (laughs) During prosperity, you must save if you are to bridge the periods of depression. Can you believe that shit? In the year, whatever this year is, whenever that book was published, 2019 or, or whatever, that's how he chooses to illustrate the Great Depression, that a bank advertisement blaming the poor for their own fate because they, they didn't save. Now, again, he didn't write those words. That's from a, a bank advertisement from long ago. But to include such a absolutely thoughtless, I mean, he is, he is the author of the book. You know, and uh, so the buck stops with him to 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 quote a, one of my favorite presidents. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then if you watch the HBO documentary, he does talk about the depression a little bit and he blames it on. He mentions two factors. One of them is is tariffs, which is a uh, common. You know, I used to work at The Wall Street Journal, The Wall Street Journal always when whenever they have to talk about the Great Depression, they blame it on tariffs, you know, on on, on uh, like on the Holly Smoot tariff and stuff like that. This is a standard sort of talking point on the free market. Right. But uh, Meacham also blames it on immigration quotas. Okay. That is like, that is totally novel. I have never heard of that before. And it's, it's like, he's blaming it on Trumpism avant Lillette, right? Because these are things Trump is, Trump is upset about immigration and Trump is upset about trade agreements. And uh, and so he finds these two factors at work in the in the 30s. And anyhow, it's it's a totally novel theory of the Great Depression. I've never heard anybody make that argument before. Yeah, especially anybody who lived through it. But he didn't. He did not, of course. He did not. No, but I mean, like, if you read the if you read Hard Times. You you get this real it's it's an incredible book. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I, I yeah, Studs Terkel is a, a really well, he's dead now. He was a great man. I he was he was a friend yeah. of mine by the way when I lived in Chicago. 
a, one, one of the true greats. Yeah, really. I mean, really. And that book, it, it, it encapsulates so many different experiences from people who are just like, yeah, we just sat on our porch to people who really struggled to, I mean, the one speaker in the book that always sticks out in my mind is the photographer who just did society photos in New York. And he says something like, well, I never saw any people in bread lines. You know, I was with the beautiful ladies. And it's, and it's like, you, you, you really can live through a desperate time where everyone is suffering. And if you're not keeping your eyes open and if you're not taking the time to sort of get out of your bubble, and I don't mean that in a like racist Trump voter bubble, I mean that in terms of like looking, you know, being interested in the world. Yeah. You can miss the Great Depression, uh, uh, and it's really sick. <laughs> hey, hey, Violet. Yes, we missed the opioid epidemic. I we did. <laughs> I don't mean you and me personally. I mean, I mean, no. I mean members of the members of the media bubble M- missed it right. until it was yeah. until it was basically. Yeah. I, I first time I even heard about it was in, and this is because I am a part of that liberal media bubble, and I live in Bethesda, Maryland, and I read the Washington Post and. And uh, I had heard very, very little about it before 2016. And it is possible. I mean, just think about that for a second. That went on for for years. And, you know, with with a huge uh, body count, you know, a huge death toll and and. People didn't know it was happening. Think about this. The, uh, there's this book, Deaths of Despair, which I've been reading, and that's kind of brought this home to me. It's so shocking and horrible that that the American life expectancy was actually going in reverse in the late Obama years. And we didn't know about it. OK, that's like that indicates catastrophe on a society wide scale. And we don't know what's going on. How freaky is that? Now, a lot of that is because of the, the what we talked about earlier, which is the death of of journalism outside of the big cities, outside well, outside of New York and Washington, and so we don't mm-hmm. we don't read you know newspapers from you know um, middle sized cities in Iowa or Ohio anymore. We don't even know about these stories. Oh my God, this is depressing. But anyhow, I don't know why I went off on that tangent. It's just like you talk about people living through the depression and not knowing it was happening. There is there is something very familiar about that right now. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, that's. I mean, that's why I mentioned it because it is sometimes. I mean, you can miss it if you're not paying attention. But also, one the last... resources aren't there to let you know. But please continue. Yes, exactly. But one last point about Meacham, which is when he's talking about these, he he massively inflates the role of certain organizations in American life. And I don't just mean the Klan. The Klan was a big part of the sort of history of the 1920s. And and it's important to take that into account. But when he's talking about the 1930s, in, this, in the HBO documentary, like he never did, really talks about the rise of organized labor. In the 30s was this great moment for worker organizing. There's a group called the CIO that just took America by storm, was organizing the, you know, the, uh, the automobile industry, was organizing the steel industry, was organizing the rubber industry, was, you know, going from victory to victory all through the 1930s. I mean, it is a great, great moment for not just labor, but for liberalism. The, the CIO is militantly anti-racist. You know, it, it's, it's a great movement, right? It's the kind of thing that a historian like Meacham should be celebrating, but he doesn't talk about that. Instead, he talks about the um, German-American Bund, which is a, a Nazi organization that was mainly in New York City. Uh, I don't know how big it was, uh, but not very big, right? It did, never had much of an effect. I mean, they had, they, they're memorable because there's a lot of footage of them. And these are like Americans dressed in Nazi uniforms. You know, it's so, it's yes. so mind blowing. It's so crazy. But he talks about that in, in this is in the HBO documentary as though that's an important part of the depression. As though that's an important part of what's going on in the 1930s, right? And it's it's uh, anyhow. It's important to Henry Ford. Oh yeah, no, look, look, <laughs> there are assholes in American life. There are there are anti semites in American life. There's no no doubt about it, about that. But there's a, a whole um, ah hell, I I don't want to get in into this too deep, but. There's this this sense that so many, and this is not Meacham alone. This is ev- basically everybody who writes about the 1930s now talks about how uh, 
you know, Roosevelt was beset by these sort of this racist right and this communist left. And Roosevelt was, you know, and, and then these kind of Huey Long demagogue types, Father Coughlin, people like that. And that Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt stuck to the middle. And Roosevelt was, as a result, they depict Roosevelt as being this great centrist who staved off fascism in America. And I, I am I am here to tell you, you know, that is not really what happened in the 1930s. The great threat to the great threat to Roosevelt was not the German American boond. Okay, Huey Long, yeah, Huey Long was for real, but uh, but he died before he ever really got, you know, got going. The the real threat to Roosevelt was a group called the American Liberty League. And this was the the great the original granddaddy of all right-wing front groups was set, set up by the DuPont family who were the Koch brothers of their day. They were brothers and they were the richest family in America at the time. And they bankrolled this group. This is before there were any limitations on this kind of spending in America. And um, well, there's not going to be any more soon. I know. It's a, we're, 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 <laughs> please continue. We're going back. <laughs> we're right back to where they were. <laughs> and this yeah, is in the yeah. mid 30s. And they, they bankrolled this group and they had more money than the Republican Party. And they opposed Roosevelt with everything they had. And it was all I mean, Roosevelt was opposed by something like 85 percent of the editorial pages in America. The wealthy were against him. The law professors were against him. The economists were against him. And they uh, these people blanketed the country with their denunciation of Roosevelt, calling him a dictator, calling him a fascist, calling him a communist, and he beat their ass. And that's the real, uh, the great sort of story of the 1930s. And somehow that is not, nobody tells that story because when you do actually study that, Roosevelt beat them by, you know, Roosevelt was on the left. This is just, it is, it is so hard for people to understand today, but believe me, <laughs> Roosevelt was a liberal. And the way he beat these guys was by speaking to people's, yes, economic anxiety, talking about, he called these people economic royalists. You know, <laughs> you know, he was very good at fighting these people and he just beat, he beat the hell out of them. And that's the real dynamic of the 1930s, not this kind of, uh, you know, like the, the, the Nazis were going to take over or something. Right. And I mean, I, I think that goes back to Meacham's personal connection to Biden and to to a further extent the role of former political advisors and or politicians like Rahm Emanuel or you know Chris Christie who I think it's even more blunt than that I mean the American Liberty League is basically Reaganism right and uh, right. it's 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 what we call um, you know neoliberalism this was so right. Roosevelt was regarded as as at the time as a radical because he had taken America off the gold standard he was regulating industry he was uh, supporting the unemployed you know we got unemployment insurance for the first time social security all of these things were massive offenses against economic propriety against orthodox classical economics I mean these are you, you can't imagine what the New Deal looked like to people who believed in classical economics. This is norm shattering, earth shaking. It's it's like it's like like Lenin. You know, it's that shocking to these people. Well, these people are what we today call neoliberalism. And that comes back into power with Ronald Reagan. Uh, John Meacham admires Ronald Reagan above all other presidents. Yes, they say this in the documentary. <laughs> I love him. So of course he's not going to see that as a as a you know as an important dynamic in American life. It, that's that's who he is. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And and all the, you know, I mean we were referring to this before, but that, you know, all the ills of all the bad things about America that we can all agree on. Welfare queen is not one of them. Yeah, the right. ills of the Reagan administration, ignoring the AIDS crisis. He's very serious. Right, destroying things. organized labor. Uh, you know, the, and the, the NAFTA, for God's sakes, although that was that was more yeah. that was Bush, you know, his hero. Yeah, these are these are not bad things for him. The only twist here is that Meacham is the, the people who adore him are liberals. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's the twist. Everything else is totally predictable and normal. You know, I know, I know. I mean, I mean, this is when you get this type of commentator, you know, and I remember this again because this was like, what, like nine months ago, people were talking about how, you know, oh, we need a Republican like Ronald Reagan again and not somebody like Donald Trump. That Trump was that. 
Exactly. I, I don't know why that is so hard. Make America great again. That's that's a Reagan slogan. <laughs> well, yeah, the Roger Stone came up with that in 1979, and then he used it again for that campaign. Like it's all it all just comes back around. But it it is it is worrying because again, these popular histories, sure they they change depending on who's telling them, what year they're in, but they do have an effect on our common understanding of the past is. And again, they can be really damaging and, and erase things that are hugely important and what actually happened. You, you're right about that. But I would historicize, I would use a little historicism here that he is a, uh, he is a product of, of these times rather than the moving force. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was a uh, very spirited, which is good. Thank you for having me, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 